let's get to the lesson. Today we're going to do part two of our survey on Revelation. I want to particularly pay attention today to the structure of Revelation. And the introduction to my lesson goes something like this. I love superhero movies. There's an entire genre of movies for superheroes. Now, some of you don't seem to go to superhero movies, and that's fine. It leaves more open seats for me. But I got to tell you, if you can't recognize at least four of those characters, you're not really a superhero aficionado. You ought to be able to get Thor, the thunder god, he's got the hammer, Captain America, the Hulk behind him. Surely you can get some more of those. So, I mean, these are, these are easy. These are Marvel comic superheroes. And now they make movies. And I love these movies. It's a whole genre. There's, there's a whole, you know, Superman versus Batman. These are tremendous movies. Now there's one that came out just recently. X-Men Apocalypse. Now I don't know how many of you have, how many of you have seen X-Men Apocalypse? Okay, some of you have seen it twice. You're holding up both hands. I really respect you for that. Especially if you bought two tickets and didn't just sit through twice. If you haven't seen X-Men Apocalypse, I won't spoil it for you, but I do want to tell you that the main villain is In Sabanur. In Sabanur happened to be a mutant who was ruling with his mutant superpowers, Egypt. When his opponents trapped him in a living grave around 3600 B.C., Recently, he was released, and he decided that mankind had ruined this world. He didn't like where it was, so he was going to destroy civilization. This is where he gets his nickname, the Apocalypse, because he destroys civilization when he doesn't like it. Now, if you are someone who was paying attention last week in class, you know, Apocalypse... Today might mean the end of things or something of cataclysmic change, you know, something that, that's just devastating on a, on a global scale. But that's not the root of the word. The root of the word comes from the Greek word apokalupsis, which means an uncovering or a disclosing or an unveiling. It means to remove from and display. It is the word that's translated in our Bibles, revelation, because it's a revealing or a disclosing. It's just the book of Revelation has been deemed to be an end-time book. So we've developed a misuse of the Greek idea of apocalypse when we've decided that it means the end of days or some grand-scale devastation. In other words, in the Sabanur, also known as Apocalypse, has a bad name. And a Greek scholar, you, if confronting him, would be able to tell him that. I wouldn't advise it. Guy's got some incredible powers. It takes all of the X-Men to fight him. The X-Men include, like, Magneto, who can affect the magnetic poles of things and do all sorts of stuff with metal. 
You've got shapeshifters. You've got these incredible superheroes with mutant powers. Now, I have trouble occasionally finding someone to go to these movies with me since our son moved off and got old. I followed Will with four daughters and a wife. Becky will go, but she's asleep within 15 minutes of the movie starting. It's not quite the same. Oh, now that Rebecca and Sarah are a little older, the boys seem to come around the house. And occasionally I'm able to get some of the boys to go with me. And Rebecca will stay home while all of the boys that came over, or Sarah, uh, came over to visit with my daughters, go with me. And that's how I got to see uh, Avengers Age of Ultron last summer. But, but I have a litmus test for whether or not someone can go see a superhero movie with me or whether it will be wasted on them. Here's what I tell people. I say to them, have you seen X-Men the Apocalypse? They'll say no. I'll say, I'm dying to see it. I hear it's based on a true story. Now, if they laugh, they're worthy to go to the movie with me. If their response is, really? They don't need to go see superhero movies because they don't have a good enough grasp either of the genre or of reality. (laughs) So we're talking this morning about apocalypsis, but not in Sabanur. We're talking about the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling, the disclosing. Like the superhero movies are a genre, There was a time in history where there was a genre of literature that was what we would call apocalyptic literature. Not because it all dealt with the end times, though that was a common theme of apocalyptic literature. The battle of good and evil, a common theme. But apocalyptic literature were messages that were hidden in a vision that would be unveiled. And so these are a type of literature that pretty much was exclusively Jewish. From about 200 B.C. to 200 A.D., we have manuscripts in that time range of this literature. That doesn't mean that's when the literature started, the genre started. That's just as old as the Dead Sea Scrolls that we've got. And they're our oldest copies of this type of material. Might have been around longer than that. The earliest example that most scholars give is the book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel gives birth, if you will, to this genre of literature. The Old Testament book of Daniel I'll get to in a minute because I think it's absolutely critical to our understanding this type of literature. Revelation is one writing it's the inspired writing we have in the New Testament. It's, it's God's divine inspired scripture utilizing a genre of literature well known at the time. A type of literature well known at the time. And so we need to read it with the mindset of the original readers before we try to understand it for our era today. At least that's my contention. We have lots of these in the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And so in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we got massive numbers of apocalyptic manuscripts. I showed you this last week, but it's worth looking at again because we'll look at a different example. But I brought the Dead Sea Scrolls, and if you look in the index of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see, here are the index where they give the names. The Dead Sea Scrolls you identify by cave number, and manuscript number. Let's see if we can get that in a little sharper focus. So, for example, the Apocalypse of Lamech is 1Q20. That means it was found in Cave 1 at Qumran, and it's manuscript number 20. The Apocalypse of Wheats, 4Qumran247. The Apocalypse of the Messiah was found in Cave 4 of Qumran. It's manuscript 521. And so you have all of these different apocalypses. You have the Apocrypha of Joseph, the Apocrypha of Joshua, Apocryphon of Joshua, Apocrypha of Lamentations. A number of these are apocalyptic pieces of literature, especially the Apocrypha of Daniel. 4Q246, that is apocalyptic literature. We can look at it and we can read it and you'll see things. Let's get the Apocalypse of Daniel, Apocrypha of Daniel. I showed you one passage of this last week, but I want to show you another passage because it's relevant in what we'll look at today. He will be called, this is the Messiah, you know, the Jews knew a Messiah was coming. This was not some newfangled idea that Jesus just unfolded. The people were eagerly waiting for a Messiah. They'd had this literature, this piece of writing we're looking at now was written before Jesus was born. You say, well, yeah, but that was found in a cave at Qumran. Yeah, that's important. That means it was prominent enough and popular enough that it existed out in the Essene community and they worked to save it. It wasn't just some little edition of Dune Buggy Baby or something. I mean, this was a serious work worth saving. When your house is flooding, you don't go back in for the paperback Dune Buggy Baby, but you go back in for something valuable. He will be called Son of God, and they will call him Son of the Most High. That's Luke 1.32 language, where the angel Gabriel says that Jesus will be called Son of the Most High. It's, 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 there, if anybody's reading the Gospels who's familiar with the literature of the day, you cannot walk away knowing the literature of the day in the Gospels with anything other than an awareness that Jesus Christ was being called the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Because it's clear the echoes of the, the, the language of the New Testament is echoing what the people of the day were saying. Look, like the sparks that you saw, so will their kingdom be. They will rule several years over the earth. They'll crush everything. A people will crush another people, a province, until the people of God arises and makes everyone rest from the sword. His kingdom, look at this. His kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom. 
all his paths in truth. He will judge the earth in truth. He says, I am the way, the truth. Jesus is making a messianic claim. All will make peace. The sword will cease from the earth. All the provinces will pay homage to him. The great God is his strength. He will wage war for him. He will place the peoples in his hand and cast them all away before him. His rule will be an eternal rule. And all the abbesses... Manuscript is ripped. That's it. I'd love to know what the rest of that sentence said. Um, but we don't. So go dig in a cave and see if you can find it. These are out there and we've got these and they give us insight into what the messages would have said to the people. But that's a message from an apocalypse of Daniel, not scripture. Do not be confused. These are people who were writing things, not claiming they were scripture. This is like C.S. Lewis writing the Chronicles of Narnia. This is what they were writing, inspired by Scripture. But it's not Scripture. So this apocalyptic literature was a large Jewish genre between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. And that's what we've got, and we've got it here. Now, the apocalyptic literature itself shows a very strong link to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Let me give you an example of this. Here is... The war scroll I'm about to put out here, that's actually not a fragment of the war scroll. That's just a fragment that fit my PowerPoint slide. It's a Dead Sea Scroll fragment, though, but not from the war scroll. And here's the book of Daniel. Now, 1QM is the war scroll. That's the designation for it. So, lines, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 11C to 12. Read the following. It will be, and this is talking about the the... The uh, uh, times of the, the, the end times, if you will. It will be a time of trouble for all the nation. Of all their troubles, none will be like this. Hastening until the end of final redemption. Daniel 12.1 says, There shall be a time of trouble. Same Hebrew words, by the way. Such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. The end of final redemption. See, uh, the apocalyptic literature had a very strong link. It was inspired by the Old Testament book of Daniel. So if we want to look at this in a little more detail, I want to tell you also, Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, leans heavily on the book of Daniel. So for example, Daniel says, I saw in the night, Daniel 7.13, visions, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Jesus calls himself the son of man. Revelation says though, behold, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. And it echoes the language of the Greek version that existed at the time of the book of Daniel. And you've got it over and over and over again. You see in Daniel 7, 9, his clothing, he sees the Messiah. His clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. The hairs of his head were like, were white, like white wool, like snow. That's not Revelation. Yes, that is Revelation 1, 14. Revelation is depending also upon Daniel. 
many of the same images, many of the same words, many of the same concepts that are found in Revelation are found in Daniel. Daniel's a key that helps us unlock the understanding of so much of apocalyptic literature, whether it's the book of Revelation, Scripture, or whether it's the Dead Sea Scrolls and other apocalyptic writings like Enoch. So apocalyptic literature had a strong link to the Old Testament book of Daniel. I brought a book, The Use of Daniel, in Jewish apocalyptic literature and in the Revelation of St. John. This is by G.K. Beale. It's basically a printed version of his doctoral dissertation at Cambridge University. G.K. Beale is a now, at this point in life, well-known commenter, good Greek scholar. Uh, the book of Revelation is his thing. He did the commentary for the Greek New Testament commentaries that are out there. And if you look at this book, um, it's easier just to show you the book. He's comparing the general structure of Revelation 1, this is chapter 1, verses 4 through 20, to that of Daniel chapter 7. Look at the comparison here. And this is why scholars are so quick to say you've got to see these two books together. God's sitting on a throne in both of them. There's a plurality of heavenly beings surrounding the throne in both of them. There's a mention of the Son of Man's, Christ's, universal rule in both of them. The saints are given or made a kingdom in both of them. The coming of the Son of Man on clouds of authority in both of them. The image of a book associated with judgment in both of them. A detailed description of a heavenly figure and his environment in both of them. The seer having emotional distress because of the vision in both of them. And then the seer receives heavenly counsel consisting of an interpretation of part of the vision in both of them. If you are familiar with Daniel, and you're, and especially in the Hebrew or the Greek, even more so, and you're reading Revelation, you will immediately in the first chapter of Revelation say, Ah, oh, this is a, a, this is a Daniel type vision. Not only confirming to an extent, I guess, the, the fact that it's biblical, but clearly helping us understand what it is. So I think it's useful when you realize that to look at the structure of Daniel's visions and to look at the structure of the visions in Revelation. Revelation, apocalypsis, means to unveil this vision, to disclose, to reveal. So let's look at it. Now in Daniel, you've got the visions in two different areas. By and large, Daniel's divided up into a narrative story section and a future visions section. The narrative story section is in the first six chapters. But part of that narrative story includes the king having a vision and Daniel interpreting that in chapter 2 of Daniel. Then the last part of Daniel, the last half, the last six chapters, deal with future visions. And if you look at these visions, you're going to see something real clear. These visions all deal with the same time period. 
I'm going to try this on the PowerPoint. If it works on the PowerPoint, great. If it doesn't work on the PowerPoint, we'll shift to the Elmo. But here it is. These visions deal with a timeline from the time of Daniel up to the time of the Messiah. And there are repeated visions that do this over and over and over. So the book of Daniel starts out and you've got Babylon. And then from Babylon, the Medes and the Persians. That's who conquered Babylon. Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians. And then the Medes and Persians lose out in history to Alexander the Great and his Macedonian slash Greek infiltration of the Mediterranean and known world as far as India. Alexander dies. His empire is set up by four of his generals. And so it's divided into four parts. And those four parts are there until the Roman Empire basically comes and conquers. Now, in Daniel, you'll read in the visions, each vision has got, if not all of those parts, most of those parts. And scholars may dicker a little bit over, is this the Medes and the Persians, or is it the Medes here and the Persians there? But it's not really hard to tell what these parts are. It is so compelling what these parts are, that some scholars who are skeptics about God's ability to tell the future will say Daniel was written late after all of these events. Because it just reads so clear. So you've got vision one. And vision one spans that whole time gap from from Daniel's time and the Babylonians all the way up to the Romans. Then you've got vision two, spans the same timeline. Then you've got vision three, spans the same timeline. You follow me? Hey, it's like an onion. If you peel back an onion, you're going to get the same thing on the next layer. And you're going to get the same thing on the next Oh, they may vary a little in size. But it's the same basic structure. And that's the way it is with the book of Daniel. So you've got vision one, you've got vision two, you've got vision three. But they're spanning the same time. Now the question that scholars have is how do you read the book of Revelation? Because you've got some choices. Revelation has 22 chapters. So you can read Revelation as one long story that starts out at the time it's being written and moves chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22. And that's one long timeline. And some scholars believe that's the way it should be read and and. Uh, God bless them. There are a lot of mucho smart people who think that. I don't agree with it. And I would suggest that Revelation makes a lot more sense if we understand it the same way that Daniel was written. In that same apocalyptic vein, so that if you take the sections of Revelation 
you've got sections one through seven. The book can divide into seven sections. And those sections, to me, seem logically to make sense if you view them spanning from the victorious incarnate Jesus to judgment and eternity. And just like an onion from the inside gets bigger as it gets out, these span further and further progressively with each vision. More emphasis is put at the end of days in the last vision. And so that's what we've got. You've got Revelation 1 through 3 is the first section. Revelation 4 through 7 follows it. Revelations 8 through 11 follows it. Revelations 12 through 14, 15 and 16, 17 and 19, 20 and 22. Those are the sections of Revelation. And I would suggest that they make the most sense if we read them like you read Daniel, where each one spans that same time gap. Just like they did in Daniel. And so, for example, Revelation chapter 1 through 3. The first three chapters of Revelation deal with the church and holiness. And it starts out with the vision of Christ walking among the lampstands, and the lampstands represent the churches. Then you've got the letters to the churches. But it's clearly not only for the churches of that day. You've got letters to seven churches. And seven was a number that represented completeness and wholeness. I've put an appendix at the back of your lesson that, that uh, I put together that shows how in that culture, in that day, numbers had very symbolic meanings. They weren't, by and large, math majors. Numbers for them were something that, that carried a symbolic idea as well. Seven, the letters to the seven churches, yes, they were letters to those seven churches. But they're also, by doing it that way, letters that we read today and get nourishment from. They apply to the church eternal. So you've got that time frame there. And then Revelation 4 through 7, that's dealing with the persecution of the saints from the time of the victorious incarnate Christ to judgment and eternity. That's the part that's got the four horsemen of the apocalypse as the first four parts of the seven parts within that section among seven sections. See, seven's complete. You've got seven sections. In that section, you've got seven parts. That represents the complete span of time. Then you've got your third section, Revelations 8 through 11. And while the, the, the second section deals with the persecution of the saints during the time between Jesus' victory and judgment and eternity, we go back and the next vision deals with the people outside the church. And these are the seven trumpets. Trumpets are sounded to warn. These are the warnings for the people outside the church, when you see these things happening in the world, they should drive you to the Lord Jesus. The sad part is, as Revelation notes, most people won't hear those trumpets and understand them as a warning, and they won't come to Jesus. But that doesn't change the fact, you know, God's giving them a warning. Uh, I'm constantly amazed at people who do something God tells them not to do and then turn around and get upset because God doesn't take care of the consequences. I'm thinking, okay, dummy. Or as Pastor David has taught me this morning to say, okay, um, idiot, 
Bless your heart. God's job was to give you the warning. Your job was to heed it. If he tells you don't stick your hand in the fire, it's going to get burned. When you stick your hand in the fire, don't blame him. He warned you. So the world gets the warning. And people outside the church get the warning, but they don't heed it. The next section has an emphasis on how Christ, during this entire time period, is the conquering Christ. Revelation 12 through 14 starts out with the birth of Christ. See, this, this is, this is a, a good example of how Revelation is, is, does this cycle over and over. Revelation 12, you got trouble with this passage if you're just taking the whole book as a timeline instead of seeing it as a recycling, another layer of the onion, another layer of the onion. So this, Chapter 12 starts again with the incarnate Christ, victorious Christ. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head, a crown of 12 stars. The crowning work of Israel, Abraham's seed will be like numbered like the stars in heaven. 12 is a complete number, as is 7. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Go back and read what King Herod did. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the vision continues to transfer in time. And so we see this progression from the incarnate victorious Christ to the conquering Christ at the end who slays the dragon. Because we win in the end... Through Jesus, he has conquered the grave and the demon who runs the grave. We look at the next section. It's the judgment on the nations. And it started with the victorious incarnate Christ. And it goes to judgment and eternity. And these are the seven bowls of wrath that God's poured out in judgment upon the nations. If you look at Revelation 17 through 19, the next section. It's the conquering Christ, and it's a fantastic image and picture and visions of Jesus conquering. And Jesus' conquering starts on Easter Sunday and goes to the end of time. Then we've got the last one, which is the one where I want to spend a little bit more time. Revelation 20 through 22. And in this one, we're more than conquerors. This is the one that has the new heaven and the new earth that comes down. This is a tremendous one. Now this changes if you... Let me say this. There are... um, um, I often tell the story of two guys who were debating Revelation that I had from my youth when I was growing up kid. 
And one of the guys was, um, they, they both read, they were both very adamant about their stances. And in one way, their stances were the same on the book. And a fella who was there also said to them afterwards, I hear y'all are both on the same position on that, but I sense there being a little bit of difference between you two. What's the difference? And one of the fellas said, okay, we both believe it, but he's more adamant than I am. If Jesus comes back and does it a different way, I'm okay with that. He's going to argue with Jesus. And I remember that, lo these 40 some odd years later, thinking, hmm, note to self. Always remember, if Jesus comes back, don't argue. Say, ah, I was wrong. So, it's real possible. I'm not going to be overly adamant. And I'll also tell you this. Revelation is not the only place in Scripture where the end of days is taught. You want to be premillennial? Be premillennial. you got tons of places you can go find it. You don't want to be premillennial? You want to be postmillennial. Be postmillennial. you got tons of places you can find that. You want to be a millennial? Come over to my house and we'll do it together. But there are tons of places you can find that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to pigeonhole you and I'm not, I, I want to make sure everybody understands we approach this with humility or we are fools. But having said that, that doesn't mean that there's not stuff we can understand. So I want to look at this passage for a moment because I think it's one where Clearly, if you take the structure that I'm suggesting, how you read this passage will be very different than if you take a structure that says it's one long, continuous timeline. Because this is the passage that talks about the binding of Satan. So if we look at Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20 starts with, and this is the start of a section, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, Genesis 1, 2, 3, well, not 1, but 2 and 3, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he gets released for a little while. Now, what I've suggested to you is that this is actually going back and starting the cycle all over again. So this is the incarnate victorious Christ, binding Satan. And some might say, well, Satan sure seems to have a heyday. Where do you get that from? Well, I get it from Scripture. So if we look, for example, if you go back to the PowerPoint for a moment, I've put up there, there it is. Uh, let me go back from Balo, Deo. I've put up Deo as a Greek word. Matthew 12, 24 is going to be our passage to look at. Um, I'll put the Greek up here for you because I forgot you guys do read Greek. Deo. All right. Matthew 12, 24. This is Jesus. Life of Christ, he's been challenged for what he's doing. He's been challenged because he heals a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. 
Jesus heals him so the man speaks in amaze. All the people are amazed. Could this be the son of David? Now the Pharisees hear it. And they say, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to him, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, balo is the Greek word for cast out. We'll look at that again in a minute. He's divided against himself. How will he stand? If I cast out, balo, again, demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? But if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter the strong man's house? How can someone plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? That's the Greek word deo. Jesus is saying, I have bound the strong man. I have bound the serpent. That's how I'm casting out these demons. Satan is bound. That's how I'm plundering his house. There's another passage a couple of chapters later where Jesus says to his apostles, you can bind and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Same word, deo. So if you go back where it talks about Satan being bound for for a thousand years, a thousand I would suggest, don't set your calendar by it. Again, it means a a, a large length of time. He seized the dragon and bound him for a thousand years. That's Deo in the Greek. That's what Jesus did. That's how the church gets a hold. That's how the church conquers the world. Now, it's not constant. There's going to be an end of times where the Satan's a lot freer than otherwise. But this is the same thing where he says, he threw him into the pit. That threw him, that's the Greek word balo. Threw him into the pit. He bound him and he threw him out of the world and into the pit. And that's the same language that Jesus uses over and over. And so I do see this as one. Now, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he'll come out to deceive the nations all over the earth at the four corners. Four means the whole thing. North, south, east, and west. All over the earth to gather them for battle. There's going to be some horrific time at the end. But we know... After this, Jesus is victorious. He comes back. There's a great white throne scene. There are new heavens and new earth. And the old is passed away. The sea is no more. And the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And this is the one where last week, if you were here, we compared the New Jerusalem from the Dead Sea Scroll apocalyptic literature because they had the New Jerusalem. There's a whole bunch of those writings with the New Jerusalem. All of them, or a number of them would have the 12 gates just like in Revelation. But the difference is in the non-Scripture writings of humans, 
there's always this incredible temple in the New Jerusalem. But in Revelation, there's no temple because God himself dwells there. And, and, and John's revelation corrects, uses the, the genre of the day to drive home a very important point. That at the end of days, God dwells in our midst. It solves the Genesis problem. If you ever have a chance to go see the chapel on the library property grounds, the way the chapel roof has been painted, Ceiling, I guess, not roof. Roof's on the outside, isn't it? Sorry, I'm a builder. Um, the way the ceiling's been painted, it starts out, just when you open the door, with God holding Adam in his hands. God forms Adam with his hands. He, he from the dust of the field. And, and there's an intimate fellowship. Adam and Eve fall from that fellowship and they're cast out. They're thrown out of the garden. And when they're thrown out from the garden, there's sin and all of the corruption and all of the problems enter because there cannot be fellowship between sinful humanity and the holy pure God. The holy pure God has to consistent with His justice. Figure out how to justly take care of the sin. And He promises to do that through the offspring of woman. And so Satan immediately goes to work on the offspring of woman. Cain is incited to kill Abel. But God has a remnant. God is in control. And Eve conceives and gives birth to a new child, to Seth. And you can walk through that spiritual battle and read it in Genesis. And God finally says it's coming through Abraham and through the seed of Abraham will be one. Through whom all the nations will be blessed. And that's the one who will destroy the work of the serpent. And so you continue, and then it's Abraham, and then it's Isaac, and then it's Jacob. And then you get from the tribe of Judah. Then you get from the seed of David will come one who will sit on the throne eternally. And then you finally roll into the New Testament times, and Matthew is so clear to show the links all the way back. Because Jesus is the prophesied one who's going to fix the problem that started in the Garden of Eden and the sin of humanity. And it ends in Revelation at the other end of the Bible, the other bookend. Ends with Jesus coming back and there is the river of life and the tree of life. And Jesus is there and Jesus will again dwell with his people. And it says it so clear and then it ends with Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So the story ends where people have their robes that have been washed. They have a right to the tree of life. They get to enter the city by the gates. 
They're no longer the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and the falsehood uh, practicers. It's the redeemed of the Lord. That's the victory. And that's at the root of revelation. And you get there regardless of how you do the line. (laughs) Points for home. I'm going to praise my Lord this week. I'm going to go home from here and I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to sing to myself and study to myself Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. You know what steadfast love is? Steadfast love is love that existed in the Garden of Eden. That in spite of all of the battles with Satan, all of the fights with disease, sickness, death, pain, misery, agony, all of the problems that we exist in this world holds firm to the end in victory for us. The steadfast love toward us, the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Next take home point. I'm going to praise the Lord this week. Same take-home point, just a different passage. Now to him who is able, this is a doxology from Jude, the book right before Revelation, one chapter. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, the victorious one, Be glory, be majesty, be dominion, be authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Final point for home. Again, I'm going to praise God. Because as Paul said, we're living in the now and the not yet. We are in the life of the victorious Christ. But we're not yet experiencing the fullness of the new Jerusalem. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. I don't know what you're going through in your life right now. But you stand up firm for Jesus. And if you are counted worthy for Jesus. I had a friend say to me the other day. God did not give difficulties to people who are unable to handle it. If God's got you in a difficult place right now, first it's to bring you to Him and to sharpen your focus. But it's also to say to you, you are the right person right here, right now for this, both for what it does for you and what you do for the world. And so you hold tight to Jesus and you put one foot in front of the other And there will be a day of glory at the end that he has won for us already. Can I bless you in Jesus' name before we go home? Lord, I lift up my my friends here today, my friends and my family, both in this room and who watch by internet, Father, or listen on the radio. I lift them up and I ask you to bless them. Give them the confidence and the courage And the steadfastness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ has conquered eternity for us.
And all we're doing is walking there right now. And we don't do that, Lord, alone. We do that with you each step of the way. Bless my friends, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.